Salem, Massachusetts is where more than a dozen people were hung as witches in the 17th century. Now it's a suburb of Boston. But thanks to its famous witch history, it's a pretty good place to get your cards read. The scene that this picture shows is the dragon who is fleeing from this volcano. This volcano had been dormant for a long time. That was his home. And the dragon, being well, rather smart, you can't fight a volcano. He's fleeing from it. That really is a card of danger. Did something bad happen to you recently? Actually, things have been really good lately, so okay. it's hard to relate to that a little bit. I'm Maria Konnikova, and this is The Grift, stories about con artists and the lives they ruin. You just heard my producer, Adelia Rubin, getting a tarot reading at a psychic fair in Salem. And no, her life isn't ruined by it. But listen for how menace, the potential for something bad to come, is just hanging in the air. This is the final card. You have the Knight of Swords. Interesting card to get for your finality card. This is a knight who knows where they are, and he's just kind of hanging out there, waiting for change to come to him. You have something which is coming to you which you can't yet see. It's a little scary. Tarot cards really don't predict the future. What they really do is they say, here's the course you're on right now, and if you continue to follow down this path, but you have this wonderful magical thing that's called free will. If you don't like the path you're on, you can always change. Maybe you've had your cards read, or your palm read, or on a drunken whim you've entered one of those storefronts with the word psychic spelled in neon in front of dark curtains. The experience can be harmless and forgettable, whether or not you believe in some aspect of the paranormal. But I'm here to tell you about a type of psychic that's not harmless or forgettable. We'll never really know how much money predatory psychics steal every year, but it's substantial. If you've listened to other episodes of my show, then you know that con artists are masters of the subconscious realm. They read the cues we give off. They seek and find the stories we want to hear. They massage our eternal sense of optimism that the future, especially our own future, will be bright and rewarding. The psychics I'm talking about today, they operate in a different neighborhood of the subconscious, our fearful and irrational side, the one that's strongest when we're losing control of our lives and will do most anything to gain it back. And those who take advantage of that emotional upheaval they have an especially powerful asset on their side. Shame. Because their victims often seem so unbelievably gullible to the outside eye. Few people have sympathy for them. You might even feel yourself losing your patience as you listen to the story I'm about to tell. Seriously, you might ask, how could anyone fall for that? Just remember, that very question is a gift we all give the predatory psychic. They know that superstitious behavior can look and sound ridiculous, that visiting a psychic may seem desperate. As far as the psychic is concerned, the more ridiculous and desperate, the better. The shame of the victims keeps the con artist's crime in the shadows that much longer. 
I had a woman call me and she said, Bob, she says, I gave away $90,000. This is Bob Nygaard. He's a private investigator, and he's talking about one of the many, many calls he gets from people defrauded by psychics. This call was probably the most dramatic. It's my money that my husband and I were going to send our daughter to college with. And no one in my family knows. And I'm going to have to go home. And at some point, I'm going to have to break the news to them that the money is gone. And I don't know how I'm going to explain that I gave it to a fortune teller. The next thing I know, she started crying and she was sobbing uncontrollably. And then she said, Bob, I'm on the eighth floor right now. I'm on my lunch break and I'm on the ledge. I think I'll just take a step, one step and end it all. It'd be a lot easier than going home. Nygaard talked her off the ledge. And he took on her case, as he has hundreds of others. He gets calls from all over the world. He has so many requests for help, he says, he's had to stop taking cases where victims were defrauded of less than $10,000. Often, the losses are in the hundreds of thousands, even millions, all of it handed over without the use of force. And that's the problem. I've never seen a group of victims so maligned as the victims of fortune-telling fraud because they go into a police station, they say, hey, I was ripped off by a psychic. And the first thing the cop does is roll their eyes and say, you've got to be kidding me. This makes Bob Nygaard mad because for 21 years, he was a New York City cop. Now, in his semi-retirement, he's on a one-man mission to get psychic grifters locked away. In fact, whenever you hear about a psychic fraud case being prosecuted, chances are Nygaard is the one behind the case. I have to tell you, he's really into his private eye persona. Nygaard's a mountain of a man, over six feet tall, kind of burly, wears a goatee, and a signature fedora. If you saw him in black and white, you'd think you were looking at a detective in a noir film. More likely, you've seen him on the TV news in some lurid segment about psychic crime. So he's a showman. But as a PI, Nygaard really does rip the purple velvet curtains from your average psychic scam to reveal the criminal pattern underneath. Very often it starts off a $20 reading, and then next thing you know, oh, you know, I have to do a deeper meditation in order to get to the root cause of the problem. The problem is something the victim has talked about or alluded to, or that the psychic unearthed by dropping plenty of hints and watching for telltale reactions. The psychic seems to know so much more that hasn't been revealed. And she, it's usually a she, is very alarmed. So alarmed that she needs to take the problem to a higher power. I have to go to the altar. I have to talk to my superior, Father John. You know, I have to go into meditation and prayer. Because there's a curse, and it's somehow related to money. And, you know, money is the root of all evil. And that's how it begins. The psychic might ask for some of the cursed money to keep in a jar for a time while the prayers do their magic. Of course, the client can have it back at any time just for the asking. But the real test here? It's one of trust and of desperation. It's a step-by-step gamble where each time you give, even a little, you become willing to give even more. If you don't, 
it means you messed up by parting with your money to begin with. And who wants to admit that? On a deeper level, if you're willing to give cash to a stranger to put in a jar and pray over, then there's something else going on in your life that's really stressing you out. And that something else is something that can be taken advantage of. You see victims that are given a diagnosis that they have cancer or that their loved one has cancer or their husband leaves them for another woman or their wife leaves them for another man or their boyfriend or girlfriend breaks up with them or they have a child that has autism. To make things even more disturbing, not all psychic fraudsters lie in wait like a spider with a crystal ball. Some are out on the hunt for the perfect mark. Oh, hi, Maria. How are you? It's my pleasure to speak with you because, as I mentioned before... This is Lila. She's one of Bob Nygaard's current clients. And her story shows how easily any of us could be the right person in the wrong place, giving off exactly the kind of signals that can make us easy prey. A few years ago, Lila was just another foreign student struggling to get by in Southern California. She'd been admitted to a master's engineering program at USC. Yeah, yeah, very excited because this is my dream since I was a little girl. Lila had a sheltered upbringing as an only child of well-off parents in Wuhan, China. And though she was thrilled to come to America at the age of 25, she quickly found LA overwhelming. The culture was completely new to her, and she struggled with the English language, which makes every aspect of life more difficult. Her coursework, university bureaucracy, even basic things like ordering lunch. To make matters worse, her parents only seemed to care about one thing. They only care about if you can find the boyfriend or the fiancé here. If you can't, just go back to China, get someone and marry. This is a very, very traditional concept or traditional rules. But Lila's biggest problem was, and still is, her immigration status. She wanted to stay in the U.S. after graduation, but she couldn't do that unless she got a job that would sponsor her for a visa. So first, she needed an internship. It's also hard for me because it's my first time to look for a job in my life. Lila managed to get an interview, but it was across town in Santa Monica, and she couldn't drive. So she took a ridiculously expensive taxi. And once she got there, she found out she didn't even want the job. Lila was utterly dejected and stranded out in Santa Monica. So she wandered into a mall. It wasn't just a matter of what we'd call retail therapy. It was actually a way of getting back home. You see, Lila says that where she's from, it's common to approach strangers at malls to ask for a ride back to your house. People do it all the time, and no one looks askance. Lila says she doesn't come from a culture of hitchhiking fright. For her, this was the natural way to save money on another excessive cab fare. And that's when she encountered a woman who called herself Psychic Faith. She said hi, and she's speaking. And she said, my shoes look very nice. So this catches my attention, and I start to talking with her. Here's Bob Nygaard again. And they started talking about the Japanese style of dress, and Psychic Faith said, oh, I was born in Japan, you know, to like create a kind of a bond with the victim. Faith wasn't Japanese, but she already knew a lot about her mark. 
she was practicing what's called a cold reading. A cold reading is where you basically walk up to somebody cold for the first time, you size up what they're wearing. Do they have a Gucci pocketbook? Do they have an expensive ring on? What type of clothes are they wearing? In this case, Lila walked out of a Burberry store. So she was a person of means. And then she told me she has very magic, very magic capacity. And psychic faith proceeded to tell her that she wanted to give her a reading. And she gave her a reading for a nominal fee. I believe it was $20. And then she said she needed to do a deeper reading. And she touched my hand. Then she said, now I was in a very difficult time in my life. And she also keep asking me, do I believe God? Do I believe God? And she told me she's a Christian. She only do the things that God asked her to do. And God asked her to help me. And the psychic agreed to drive her home. This complete stranger doesn't just offer her a ride home, but peppers that ride with readings and questions of faith. You'd think Lila's alarm bells would be going off. And they were. But she chose to ignore them. I think I just worry too much. Because she's a Christian, I think she's good. I think this time I just met a very nice person that I can trust. Psychic faith is friendly. She takes an interest in Lila. And Lila could really use a friend. She feels listened to, understood, supported, for the first time in a while. They exchange phone numbers, and Psychic Faith starts contacting her. She keep texting me, use very attractive words to make me feel she is my family. She can take care of me here. The psychic just weaseled her way into her life and introduced her to her family, to her daughters. Her real daughters? Yes. And, you know, and said, oh, look, would I introduce you to my family, to my daughters, Mm -hmm. if I was doing anything wrong? So Psychic Faith offers Lila a surrogate family and emotional support. And after meeting a few times, she proposes an elaborate ritual to improve Lila's life. And she told me why I always let my parents down, why I can't find a boyfriend or fiancé, because, because there's a curse of my family. There's a curse. And she has to use the money to help me to remove this curse. She asked me for 600 600 Psychic Faith says the $600, it's for the ritual. She promises to give the money back to Lila after the curse is removed. First, she just needs to buy some grapefruits. Why? We'll find out after the break. Back to our story of psychic fraud and grapefruit. When we left off, the young Chinese grad student Lila was told to buy two grapefruits and then just put them under her bed for a while. Quite a while. Lila all but forgets about them. Then, Psychic Faith calls them in. One day she asked me to bring this grapefruit to her. These rotten grapefruits. And uh, she says something to this grapefruit, some very <laughs> strange word, I don't know. And she stepped on this grapefruit with her feet to smash it. She smashes the grapefruits open, 
and there's something black inside. And she said this is the evil. From this ritual, she got a very bad message from the god. Faith ascribes the black matter to the curse, not the rot. But Lila buys it. Remember, this is a person in a strange country with no friends. Her curse, Faith tells her, is worse than she thought. It seems plausible to Lila, who's feeling more than a little cursed. Psychic Faith asks for $2,600. And again, she promises to give it back later, after the curse is lifted. When Lila hesitates, Faith reminds her that she was sent by God to break this curse. And not to put too fine a point on it, Faith also warns what will happen if Lila doesn't comply. She was told, if you don't give me money, someone that you love will die in an auto accident. If you don't give me money, your parents will die of cancer. As before, Lila hands over the money. And you know what? Her life does begin to change. She starts dating a guy in her class. It seems like a tiny miracle. Faith, of course, takes full credit for the relationship that Lila would never be dating had it not been for the interventions. But Faith goes a step further. She tells Lila that this guy is her soulmate and her only shot at marital bliss. If she messes up, she will be alone forever. And, Faith says, the curse is threatening to tear them apart. Faith needs to take a more active role to make sure nothing goes asunder. With Faith's meddling, it doesn't take long for the relationship to end. But it's not Faith's fault. It's the curse. Just like she used the relationship's beginning, she now uses its end to squeeze even more money out of Lila. It's now well beyond $10,000. Now, this could be the point, or maybe it happened earlier, where you're thinking, Lila is such a sucker. What is wrong with her? Is she an idiot? I talked with her for a long time. No, she is not an idiot. She's intelligent, sensitive, introspective. People think, well, just because someone's gullible, it's a reflection of their intelligence. And it is not. I have clients that are doctors, that are lawyers, that are uh, college professors. All they have in common is being at a really low point in their lives. So low that even something like a rotten grapefruit seems to make sense. I have been gone through a very great depression. I can't sleep all the night, I can't sleep. And I think I lost all the hope. I think in my, in my life, I only have her. To Lila, it seems like the only good thing in her life is psychic faith. She keeps giving her more and more money, now thousands at a time. Faith continues to characterize all this as a spiritual loan, all money to be returned once the curse is lifted. The real truth is that by this point, Faith has even managed to get Lila to show her bank statements, so she knows exactly how much money Lila has on hand. And each time, Lila reasons that she can always get the money back, and who knows what 
terrible tragedy will take place if she doesn't pay. And here's where things take a turn that Lila can no longer rationalize. Lila gets a tuition bill that she cannot pay. I told her I really need my money back to pay my tuition, to pay my, to pay my bills, everything. And I can't ask my family for money. How much money did you end up giving her over time? This was a, a pretty good amount, right? Yeah. So, you mean this time or the whole? The whole the, time. Oh, the whole time. I think she scanned me 18, 18, uh, I mean, 100, no, 180000 That's $180,000, all paid over to Psychic Faith in one form or another. And was this, your, was this money that your family had put aside for your tuition? Yes, yes. So you, you gave her the money that you were going to be using for school? Yes. Pretty soon, Faith realizes that she's starting to lose Lila. So she changes tactics. Before, she isolated Lila as much as possible. Now, she encourages her to go back to China and visit her family for winter break. It's only once she's back home, separated by an ocean from the psychic, that it finally hits Lila. She's been conned. It's been nine months since she first met Psychic Faith. Her money is mostly gone. Her relationship is ruined. She can't pay her tuition. But the hardest part isn't any of that. It's telling her family. My mom asked me, why you ask us for so much money? Because they know that I'm not the girl to spend money in that way. That's crazy. How you spend such big money? What you really need? She told me if I'm doing something. Then I told her I've been scanned. And she's, she's very mad at me at once. But then she just asked me, don't go back to America, no. That's the shame that so many victims of this con have to suffer. Because once a fraud artist like Psychic Faith has their claws in you, they'll figure out all your savings and your families. They'll get you to betray your loved ones. The deeper you go, the harder it is to get out. But in one respect, Lila had an advantage. She had been conned in a strange country, the U.S., a country quite possibly filled with dangerous frauds. That knowledge wasn't going to deter her anymore. There was only one way to get justice. Go back to America. Lila is searching online for cases similar to her own, and she comes across a clip of Bob Nygaard. She decides to contact him. He takes on her case, and Lila's parents agree to pay her tuition so she can finish her degree. Lila goes back to L.A. in time for the spring semester, ready to act. But by then, psychic faith is long gone. She hasn't become such a successful con artist by sticking around when things turn south. Bob Nygaard says there's no one quite like a psychic to figure out when the jig is up. 
they move around the country and they change their name, they change their hair color, they change their date of birth, their social security numbers. So really identifying them is one of the key things that you have to do when you start a case. After some legwork, Nygaard finds out Psychic Face is a woman we'll call Margaret, a convicted criminal. Who was engaged in an insurance fraud scam in Santa Clara County, California, and uh, only recently uh, got out of jail for that offense. I want my money back, and I want her to get arrested. I want justice. Lila's determined to file a claim. Nygaard puts together all of the evidence to help her submit an official police report. But the cops are not interested in investigating. 180000 to a woman who spoke in terms of curses and rotten grapefruit? Come on. Law enforcement often fails to recognize, and just people in general fail to recognize, is that they fail to credit the con with how skillful the con is, and they just tend to blame the victim. Nygaard hasn't given up. In fact, Lila's case bothers him a lot, along with the fact that psychic faith is quite possibly out there defrauding someone else. I reach out to every person I can, in every jurisdiction I can, until I find someone who is empathetic and knowledgeable and will do that case. As for Lila, she'll never be the same person she was when she first came to America. But before I came here, what we hear about America is a perfect world. People are so nice. They're very polite. They like to help people. They always smile. This is how we learn about America. But actually, it can be a totally different. Is it harder for you to trust people now? Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know how to trust the people. I, I don't know. I feel very vulnerable. Lila fell into Margaret's trap because she was vulnerable. And something to consider before you judge Lila for her naivete. Any of us could find ourselves in a position like that, even a private eye. If something happened in my life, who knows? I mean, I just realized, I recognize that the emotional state that I'm currently in is not the emotional state that I'm always going to be in. And, uh, you know, I would like to think I wouldn't fall for it, but I don't preclude it because I recognize how easy it is to fall for it. When Margaret picked Lila out of the crowd in that Santa Monica mall, she was carefully choosing her victim. Lila looked lost, distressed. Margaret picked up on all these cues. That's the art of the psychic con, the art of the cold read. Being able to pick up on all of the signals you don't even know you're letting off. And once Margaret got Lila talking about her worries, her hardships, her family, she would remember all of that information and later bring it up again to show Lila that she cared. Knowing us is the con artist's bread and butter. And for Lila, a stranger in a strange land, the desire to be known was particularly strong. Margaret gave Lila something on which to blame all her hardships, the curse. And she provided a solution, her rituals to break the curse, 
Those rituals gave Lila a sense of control over the uncertainties in her life. Never mind that it was a false sense of control. Margaret slipped up when she became lax about following the rules of her own con game, when she stopped telling Lila to keep grapefruits under her bed, and she started focusing too much on Lila's money and not enough on Lila herself. Maybe it was hubris on Margaret's part, or maybe she just decided that it was time for the con game to end. Either way, Lila managed to pry herself free from the con artist's influence. No simple feat. And that's something she can take comfort in. The Grift is produced by Adelia Rubin, Shoshi Shmulevitz, and Jacob Smith. Our editor is Julia Barton, and our fact checker is Jen Schwartz. Ben Levin composed our music. Special thanks to Mia Lobel, Laura Mayer, and Andy Bowers. 